to high truths on drugs and addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Hi, everyone. What is going on with Oregon's drug laws? The state of Oregon made history, the first state in the United States to decriminalize the possession of all hard drugs on November 2020. Marijuana has been legal in Oregon since 2014. Is this all a good idea, a bad idea, or a yet-to-be-determined social experiment? Oregon Measure 110, a ballot initiative funded by the Drug Policy Alliance, an advocacy group that promotes drug normalization, is backed by Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and passed by more than 58% of the vote. Possession of heroin, cocaine, meth, ecstasy, or other drugs is no longer a criminal offense in Oregon. Possession may be a civil, not a criminal violation that may result in a fine or court-ordered therapy, but not jail. People in Oregon can carry small amounts of drugs. What is small amount? Less than one gram of heroin, less than a gram or five pills of MDMA, less than two grams of meth, 40 grams of LSD, 12 grams of psilocybin, magic mushrooms, 40 units of methadone, 40 pills of oxycodone, two grams of cocaine. You can judge if you think that that's a small amount or a large amount. So what happens if you're caught with drugs? You can face a fine of $100 or get referred to a health assessment, and that assessment could lead to addiction counseling. The law, contrary to the marketing of the legislation, does not actually fund treatment for addiction. Oregon's drug use per capita exceeds the national average. And I ask you, our listeners, do you think drug use will go up or will it go down with these new laws? This episode of High Truths is sponsored by the Pacific Southwest Prevention Technology Transfer Center, PTTC. And our question comes from Janet Porter, the coordinator for Region 9 PTTC. Hi, Dr. Lev. My name is Janet Porter, and I'm the Workforce Development Coordinator for the Pacific Southwest Prevention Technology Transfer Center, also known as the Pacific Southwest PTTC. Our region includes the states of California, Hawaii, Arizona, Nevada, and the Pacific jurisdictions. The PTTCs are funded by SAMHSA, and we are located at the Center for the Application of Substance Abuse Technologies at the University of Nevada, Reno. Many states, including states in the Pacific Southwest region, are watching states like Oregon as cannabis laws and policies change. I am concerned about the new cannabis laws in Oregon. It appears there is money going to addiction treatment, but only five cents of every marijuana tax dollar is used by the Oregon Health Authority for substance use prevention. It seems as if prevention work is not being fully supported. Is this really smart policy? I would love to hear your opinion. Thank you. Thank you, Janet, for your important question. I also want to thank the Pacific Southwest PTTC for inviting me to speak on various topics. 
I spoke about marijuana during the early parts of the COVID pandemic. I did a multimedia presentation on the developing brain and talked about pain and pot. The Southwest PTTC is sponsoring three High Truths podcasts, including this very special episode. A special shout out to all the PTTC event attendees and people who are working on prevention of addiction. Those working on prevention are providing this vaccine necessary to decrease addiction. Treatment is critical, just like treatment of COVID is critical. But we want less addiction and illness in our country. So prevention, the vaccine, is so important and vital. Janet, I definitely have an opinion on what's going on in Oregon, but I want to bring in an expert from the state of Oregon to engage in a discussion. Dr. Robert Hendrickson is an emergency physician and medical toxicologist. Just so you all know, the toxicologists are the brainiacs of the emergency medicine profession. Dr. Hendrickson heads the Oregon Poison Control Center. He's also familiar with the Oregon Health Authority. Dr. Hendrickson has numerous awards and publications and research projects. His bio is available on the High Truths show notes. Welcome to High Truths, Dr. Hendrickson. Thank you. It's great to be here. It is wonderful to have you here and for joining us on High Truths and hoping that you can shed some high truths on the new Oregon drug laws. Um, I called you back in November when the laws first passed just to have a conversation. You were so kind and generous to have really a long discussion about it. Um, so thank you for that. Yeah, my and, pleasure. Uh, and then it, I, I didn't deter you enough because you're you're back <laughs> on the <this> show. So. <laughs> Indeed. I didn't I didn't scare you away. So that's good. And I reached you through our mutual colleague, Dr. Chris Richards. So I want to mm. give him a shout out. Um, Dr. Richards and I uh, did our residency in emergency medicine at UCSD. Um, and I'm a little older than him. I'm in the first class and he came a little later. Um, but so just a, a shout out to him. And uh, and like I told our audience, it's really an honor to have you here. And uh, it's always fun to speak to an engaging fellow emergency physician, and uh, especially the toxicologist, the brightest uh, of our of our profession. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. Like I said, it's an important topic. Um, so. It it is important. So maybe we could just dive right into it. Sure. What's the deal? What's the deal with Oregon? What's Can the you deal? <laughs> what are we doing up Can here? You, right. What can you just explain to our audience what's going on with the laws? What are what's yeah. why is it controversial or is it controversial? We maybe we could start with measure measure 110. What was that? Sure. Yeah. So there were two measures that were um, voted into law recently. And uh, the first is measure 110. The, the intent of measure 110 is to change um, personal non-commercial possession of controlled substances and to uh, decrease the punishment and to potentially steer people who are convicted of these toward uh, treatment and recovery. That's sort of the intent. We will talk about the details about whether that is exactly what's going to happen or not, but um, some of the details are they have established a certain amount of um, drug and uh, that drug has uh, that possession of that amount of drug um, has uh, in some cases decreased from a felony into a misdemeanor and in other cases from misdemeanor to a non-criminal civil violation. So I can get into those details because uh, I think they are important 
the group that has gone to a non-criminal civil violation. So this would be like the equivalent of getting like a citation. Um, that group is possession of less than a gram of heroin, less than a gram of ecstasy or less than five pills of ecstasy, um, less than two grams of meth or cocaine. And then there's a couple of other very specific um, numbers, less than 12 grams of psilocybin, less than 20 units of LSD, methadone, or oxycodone units, meaning a tab, a capsule, a, uh, you know, however um, it is supplied. Um, and those went from a misdemeanor, which has a maximum sentence of a year in jail and a fine of over $6,000 to a non-criminal violation, which is you are either fined $100 or you can have the $100 waived if you agree to be evaluated in a addiction recovery program um, and have a health assessment within 45 days of your, uh, of your crime. The other group of people is a slightly larger uh, mass of drugs. So that is um, a going from a felony to a misdemeanor, and that's one to three grams of heroin, one to four grams of ecstasy, two to eight grams of meth or cocaine. Uh, and that is uh, somewhat more than the sort of possession, the personal use, but it's an attempt to decrease things from a felony to a misdemeanor. So, you know, the, the intent there is to take people who are being arrested only for drug possession, and steer them toward recovery centers rather than jail time. That is sort of the stated intent of the, of the law. Um, there's a lot of pluses and minuses, like every law that's ever been created, um, but that is sort of the intent. Um, and they cite a few pieces of information. Um, there's about 4,000 arrests per year in Oregon that are just drug possession. So not assault with drug possession, but just plain old drug possession. Um, and they estimate, the Oregon Criminal Justice Commission estimated that that would decrease about 91%. So there are about 30, roughly 3,500 arrests or convictions per year in Oregon. Um, and the other intent, again, um, whether this is true or not, is to if a, um, let's just say an officer uh, pulls you over for speeding and sees a pipe in your front seat. Um, before this law was enacted, the evidence of a pipe was a crime because there's probably residue of a drug of abuse in that pipe and therefore there is a crime has been committed. And so that, um, doesn't quite mandate, but usually leads to a search of that car, which then um, can lead to a conviction or a arrest for drug possession. Now, because a pipe has a small amount of residue, likely under that number, it's a citation and doesn't necessarily. So now there has not necessarily been a crime committed just because you have a pipe in your front, in your front seat. Um, now it's a citable offense, which is not something that is uh, something that the police would necessarily then go search your car for. So that's sort of the intent. 
you know, sometimes you see some an expired license plate and people get pulled over and then they found, yeah. oh, but you're really wanted for murder somewhere else. And that's their clue. Um, does that mean that drug paraphernalia cannot be used as an excuse now to to search a car? If there's a reasonable reason, if there's you know reasonable uh, expectation that their crime has been committed, then this doesn't change anything. Um, this changes whether drug paraphernalia is evidence of the crime, because <laughs> it used to be that any drug paraphernalia was evidence that a crime has been committed. And now this uh, drug paraphernalia is not necessarily evidence of a crime. But if there's another crime, if there's a warrant, um, any of those things that doesn't change at all. If someone is, um, you know, has a reason to be arrested or has a warrant or committed a crime, mm -hmm. you know, hit and run, you know, that it doesn't matter if there's a pipe on there, they're getting, you know, they're going to get uh, dealt with for their crime. What this makes is possession of a small amount of drugs is no longer a crime. It's a citable offense. It's a ticket, essentially. Yeah, interesting. And then yeah. I am I'm wondering, and I know that the intent or the advertisement or the marketing um, of this uh, measure 110 for really decriminalizing a drug possession got great marketing and great funding um, mm -hmm. from an organization that really wants to normalize drug use. So this was step one to normalize drug use and and it was sold as an equitable and effective approach to drug addiction in, in Oregon. So it sounds great. Hey, we don't, we don't want people who use drugs to go to jail. They have a, a brain disease. They should be getting help. So, you know, even I would agree with that, sure. but um, I think this was a way to get into the a foot in the door in order to normalize drug use. So the ballot was funded by the drug policy Alliance and that group their you know, their mission is normalizing drug use. Uh, just like the marijuana industry, at first they wanted medicinal, then commercial, and then, you know, um, federally approved. And then just, you know, it's it's good for business. And this group feels like, you know what, some people use drugs and don't have problems. So if I can go to a bar and, and you know, have my cocktail, why can't I go to that same bar and get uh, my cocaine or my heroin or my exodus? You know, what? <laughs> this is my recreation. That, and that's their goal. This was first step into getting there. And uh, I think that that's the, the slippery slope that we're watching happen in Oregon. Yeah, I mean, I you know, like any political process, this, you know, it's kind of gross to watch, you know, it's kind of dirty. And um, on both <laughs> watching, sides, watching frankly, the sausage being made. Right? Yeah, it's never a good thing. It's never a good thing. So, um, yeah, I think that there's a lot of counter arguments for this. Um, I, I will comment, though, that, you know, like sales of drugs is still illegal. Um so, but you're right. This this could be a first step toward. But the, a the amounts process that, you, that gets you, the amounts that you quoted, like one mm -hmm. to three grams of heroin. At yeah. that point, you're a dealer. Yeah, I, mean, that's, I think that's you could, more than personal use. I think you could argue that. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of people who are um, using, you know, a, a, a numbers like that over a, over a several day period. You know, gram a day. Um, I think, I don't know what all of the logic went into, but you're right, you know, um, 
it essentially allows you to have like, you know, an, an eight ball of cocaine or meth and, uh, and that to be, it's still a misdemeanor. That's not the citation numbers, but um, you could very easily be a dealer uh, though. I, I, you know, I think, I think, you know, I think it's fair to say if you're walking around with more than three grams of heroin, more than eight grams of meth, you're probably dealing at that point. You know, yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of people who make like, you know, an annual purchase, you know, in bulk, uh, the sort of Costco version of drug use. But um, it, so, yeah, I think you, we could argue the numbers a lot. I think some, some of the things that went into this is that um, meth baggies, uh, meth is often in, in this area purchased in baggies that are more than two grams. So even for personal use, it's clearly for a multi, you know, for most people, I would imagine for multi-day. Um, but that's what we've been finding is, you know, two, three gram bags, which, um, so I don't know if that played into it, but yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, I think if you're walking around with, you know, 20 grams of heroin or, you know, meth or cocaine, clearly you are uh, dealing. Now, if you do distribute, like if you, if you're seen by an officer selling, that's still illegal. Right. Regardless of the amount you had on you, that's still an illegal act. So that's still a crime. Um, but I, I think the, the dealers got the message, like never have more than this amount in your car. So. Absolutely. I, you know, <laughs> keep the rest, keep the rest of the stash somewhere else. Well, you know, my, my immediate thought was if I was a dealer, I would be, you know, selling 975 milligram bags of heroin, exactly. right? <laughs> there you <laughs> go. You're a smart businessman. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, think, yeah. And any, you know, any rule that has always been the case, right? I mean, you know, every drug dealer and many drug users know the law um, yeah. and they know exactly how much they can possess in their pocket without uh, a felony, you know, with just a misdemeanor. In this case, it's going to go to misdemeanor and citations rather than felony and misdemeanor. But, um, you know, people have known that for, you know, for, for a long time. But yeah, the numbers are, are odd. Um, I don't know that I would have come up with better numbers, frankly, but or I and and people are watching Oregon to say, okay, well, this is a social experiment. Maybe it's a good idea. Let's watch and see what happens. I argue that we already had this social experiment and and are living the consequences of it in San in San Diego and California, where um, you know drug possession also has been decriminalized. And what's happened is, you know, officers don't stop you for that, and our law enforcement. Um, partners and colleagues ha have now learned to be mental health workers. So, uh, and I'm sure you see this in the emergency department where you'll have somebody who's um, acting very bizarre um, on methamphetamine, on drugs, walking into a restaurant, disturbing people. You know, we, you know, San Diego is a beautiful city and, you know, they're disturbing people who are coming and acting, you know, in, in, um, in an inappropriate way. And they're brought to the emergency department. And we're like, well, what are I going to do? You know, I'm just have to wait for this drug to, weren't they disturbing people? Isn't, shouldn't, maybe they should be in jail instead of the emergency department. Right. Um, and so they've learned like, well, no, the, you know, the jails don't want them. And so they end up offloading onto the emergency department. And, and, uh, and I would say that we have more drug use. I mean, we could document that since decriminalization, we have more drug use and these laws, and, you know, I, I understand the argument where people say, well, we don't want, you know, there are people with a chronic disease, they shouldn't be in jail. 
Yes, I agree. You, you need help. But um, the laws are a great primary prevention tool. Like this is illegal. You could get in trouble for it. And people have gotten the best help and recovery in jail. Some people need to go that far. Um, there's a percentage of the population where that's where they actually get their help. Um, and we've we've pushed that population out. And, and I think that we're see, already seeing more drug use, not less drug use um, by by decriminalizing. And, and I don't know if you think that that's true or not true, yeah. but uh, it'll be interesting. Well, it's, yeah, it's a little early for us to see in Oregon whether that's true. There, there are some key differences between the California law and the Oregon law. The Oregon law was very specific for drug possession and not uh, the California law was much broader and decriminalized a lot more, you know, like theft up to a thousand dollars, if I recall correctly. And so there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a, there's a lot of similarities, but there's also a lot of differences. And, um, the, I I think you, you're touching on a couple of other, you know, a couple of the, the, the worries about this law, right? So, um, you know, is it, you know, they're talking about arresting fewer people, but are we going to, are we going to have a period of time where drug use increases because you've removed the legal financial disincentive to starting drugs? I don't know. I have to admit, I don't know that there's that many people out there Not, that think that started, through. But continuing. Sorry. Maybe not starting drugs, but at least continuing drugs. What do you? Yeah, I, you, sure. I, 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 I personally have not seen that many people who get arrested once for drug use or drug possession and then stop because of that. But of course, I have a selection bias because, you know, in the emergency department, we tend to see the people who uh, it didn't work out for, you know, Um so, I, yeah, I, I think that's been the big argument is like if you if you get arrested for drug possession, uh, do you then stop? I do think that jail time, you know, I have seen personally that we do a terrible job with addiction treatment and preparing people who have spent time in jail when they leave to not use drugs. I I think we've done a terrible job of that. Um, So jail can be, could be a potential solution, but, um, uh, you know, at least uh, what I have seen locally, it, it has not been a very good solution. They don't get addiction therapy. They don't get any preparation for when they leave. They should, and that might be a, a solution, but it doesn't seem to happen very often. I think we're we're moving on that. We're not perfect as, as a country, but I think, um, I mean, there's a percentage of people who are in jail who have a substance use disorder and that we are really, as a nation, pushing treatment um, in criminal justice community and educating like the warm handoff from jail to the community mm-hmm. with uh, naloxone, less, um, use less. If you're going to go use, don't use the same amount. Cause that's how you could die. Right. And, um, and with a connection to addiction treatment. Um, but I bet you, um, Dr. Hendrickson, if you start asking your patients, um, about their drug history and they, they'll, the ones that'll tell you, oh yeah, I, I used to use meth, but I don't anymore. And ask them, well, how did you stop? And if you mm-hmm. ask that, you'll find more people who you'll hear. Well, it's like, well, you know, I was in jail for, so for that year I did. And then I, whatever, or, uh, the biggest motivator I see is women, 
Um, and, and I'll say, how, how did you stop? And they'll say, well, I, I wanted to get connected back to my children. And that was, a, that's a great motivator, you know. Through yeah. And that's where in, in engaging the legal system, yeah, yeah, I agree that that is actually a very, very potent uh, motivator, you know, uh, getting your children back and things of that sort for sure. Yeah. So mm-hmm. one part of the law that sounds good on the outside and I'm mm-hmm. wondering about is connecting to treatments. Like, okay, you could yeah. pay a hundred dollar fine or go to this recovery center. But yep. what is, what is these, what are these recovery centers? Yeah. So the law specifically, um, uh, mandates establishing, uh, addiction recovery centers or ARCs. Um, they specify that there have to be 15 that are open by October 1st. They have to be open 24-7 and available to see clients or patients or um, whatever, I guess, but they, I use, they usually call them clients. Um, and they are mandated to provide a few things. One, case management, uh, peer support, and also health assessments. And health assessments is essentially and a sort of a whole, it's supposed to be at least a holistic evaluation of the patient with medical, psychiatric, and uh, substance use uh, evaluation and um, offering of social services for that. So the intent is that you could waive your $100, um, you know, fine uh, and get evaluated at addiction uh, recovery center. Um, and also they have to be open to 24 seven. So it would be available for some situations where, um, for example, you know, if you're in an emergency department and want an evaluation or arrested or, you know, uh, have contact with the police and they could bring you there. Um, they are selected uh, in areas of need around the state. The law also establishes the 24 seven addiction hotline for advice and referral to the ARCs. And it also provides for a grant program to fund the ARCs. Uh, and this was a little on the controversial side, but the, the money comes from two sources. One is cannabis tax income. And then the second is from um, the uh, calculated saving from the state prison system. So they kind of make some assumptions about how much it costs to house a prisoner, which is roughly $44,000 a year, how fewer uh, convictions they would have in that system and, uh, and, and, and pay for it that way. Now, the cannabis tax income is absolutely gigantic. So um, there is definitely funding, but if that were to tail off in future years, then that would be very problematic. I don't see cannabis tax tailing off anytime soon personally, but um, all of this is sort of dependent on those things. Um, And then uh, the last thing is that there's an oversight and accountability council uh, and the entire program is run by the Oregon Health Authority. So um, it it is under a public health umbrella. So that's sort of been the um, you know, I think, I think they should have calculated, um, you know, they're, they're calculating savings from, uh, prisons, but they should have calculated the costs on the emergency department. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, and the, I, there's lots <laughs> of different ways in the calculation. Yeah. I mean, I think the reason why they, they chose that is because 
that is a state expense. And so they said, oh, if we have, let's just say a thousand fewer people in jail this year, that's, you know, $4.4 million or whatever the calculation is. And that money will then be used since we're spending it already. We'll spend it on addiction, which sounds like a really noble uh, and reasonable thing to do. I think some of the complaints have been, as you as you mentioned before, there's not a lot of specific language in this law about prevention and outreach. Now, I have a little bit of a experience with the Oregon Health Authority, and um, they do a really good job of these types of things. And um, I have a hard time believing that a public health agency won't have prevention <laughs> at the top of their list of things to do, but the law does not specify that they have to in any way. And so it is certainly possible right. that we could have the scenario where we're not arresting people, we're not convicting them, we're not sending them to jail, but there's lots more people using drugs. And I think that's the that's the gamble that we're all worried about, right? We'd, you know, um, five years from now, are we going to turn around? Except for, the, except for the funders of the law, right? They were sure. saying like, wait, there are people who use drugs and don't have a problem. So what's, what's they don't, yeah. they don't think of that as a problem. Like, like I do. Um, but you, you do have experience with Oregon Health Authority. Tell us about that. And, and um, you have, you have confidence in their ability to manage this. I do. I, you know, so I served on a few committees during the after the cannabis legislation to legalize uh, retail cannabis. And my experience with them is that they're uh, they're thoughtful. They uh, they take their time. They're inclusive. So right now we're, we're going to talk about a different law in a little bit. But there's a psilocybin law right now. They're putting together a council that is multidisciplinary. So when I sat on the cannabis um, rules committee, that's a magic were, mushrooms law, just so people will know. Correct. So when I sat on the cannabis rules committee, there were, um, there were public health physicians, there were pediatricians, there were um, me, um, there were cannabis growers, there were cannabis, you know, uh, um, the, the companies, uh, representatives from companies that process cannabis, there were uh, Department of Agriculture. Um, so a huge, huge uh, array of different opinions. And I think that they do a really good job of um, putting those all together into very, very thoughtful rules. And, you know, all of these things, the laws, laws are generally you know, when they're written, they're not necessarily thought out to the, you know, nth degree. They're usually some broad stroke. Mm -hmm. And then it's all really about how you run it, right? It's how about how the rules, you could see this law going off the rails. Um, you could also see this, this law with a really good um, oversight council uh, and accountability council steering things uh, going really, really well. And so I think that's really what it comes down to. It's all about this, this oversight council and how they steer things in the next couple of years. They should get data about arrests and get data about drug use and get data about how many people are checking in for um, services and what and, the and, success and, rate and is. And ER visits, right? And ER, yeah, and visits. ER visits. Absolutely. So, yeah. and 
petty crime and all of and mortality and, and mortality data all that yeah stuff. absolutely and all of that's readily available you're right i mean you know we have a, a heroin problem and if this mortality starts going up, in, up from heroin because more people are using or more people are um disinhibited is not the right word but people are have no problems walking around with half a gram of heroin in their pocket because it's you know it's nothing um then that is all input that should come back to this council and the rules should change based on that uh, I, I do have confidence I've in that i don't know if you have to as at the beginning of my career in emergency medicine i i would rarely find drugs on people you know, they, they would hide that from the doctor. And now I'm finding baggies under the hat and the bra and the socks. It's like, and it's like, yeah, so it's my, you know, my, my stash. I don't, and there's no shame in, in having that. And, that, and I feel like that's normalizing drug use. What do you, are you seeing that as well? I have not. <laughs> I feel like okay. I've always found drugs <laughs> on people, but um, okay. I think, you know, th that is one of those things, right? There's a good and a bad part of that is quote unquote normalizing drug use, right? So if you are a drug user and you've been hiding it from your doctor and your ER doctor and your primary care doctor, and this allows you to talk more freely about it and get really good information from your ER doctor and from your primary care doctor and things like that, that sounds like a great thing. On the other hand, if we quote unquote normalize it, um, then we've quote unquote normalized it, right? And so you could see more drug use, you could see more flagrant drug use, um, all of those types of things. So which one's going to win? And I, I, I agree. And I think with, um, you know, uh, marijuana has been legal in California. And the one good thing I can say uh, to that is that people are more honest with their doctors. And, and I'll ask, well, how long have you been using marijuana? And they'll be honest. They'll say, oh, I've been using it since I'm 11 or 12 years old. Yeah. And they'll, they're, you know, they're, they are more, um, you know, open with that, but they also think that it's healthy and, and, and right. Right. And that's the so thing. That's right. the other problem. If it's, if it's legal and, and, and I, just to clarify, you know, this law does not make drug possession legal. It makes it a citation, but I think the interpretation of that from most yeah. people is going to be, it's legal, right? Just like, I mean, cannabis is truly legal, but, um, if that can open up a um, conversation that then leads to uh, referral to treatment. either one of yeah. these, yeah, treatment in any way, either one of these ARCs or an outpatient or that's great. I, I don't know that I'm confident that that's going to be a huge part, but I do think it's gonna be part of the positives of this is that an open conversation. I'm wondering a little bit more about these ARCs, addiction recovery centers. Are they staffed by doctors? Is it more like SBIRT uh, screening and brief intervention? Um, do they offer MAT treatment, Suboxone? Do they do intoxication, withdrawal, hospitalizations? Um, are they going to offload the emergency department or onload to the emergency department? Totally. Yeah, that's the question. <laughs> so, um, I mean, all of the, what I spelled out is really what's mandated by the law. Again, these are under OHA. And so OHA's counsel should, um, I, I, first of all, I would think, it would be logical and reasonable that all of them would have at least a physician 
affiliated with them, who's a medical director. Um, but they're supposed to be 24 hour um, assessments and um, uh, that's and, and case management. And yeah, they don't that's provide the treatment. They don't treat addiction. They just assess for addiction. They right? don't necessarily, they're not mandated to treat. I think the intent is that these would be um, also treatment centers. But I don't think that is mandated in the law. But I think that that's the overarching idea. We'll, we'll be that watching that because I'm 100%. wondering if if you have these centers that are really addiction treatment centers. That sounds mm -hmm. lovely. Yeah. Um, but um, I have a feeling that, well, you know, I, I shouldn't judge. But I, I'm hesitant no. to think that that's really what's going to happen. I think they're going to become... Esbert syndromes, a screaming mm -hmm. brief intervention and sure. uh, treatments, and they'll do an assessment. And yes, you have a drug problem, like, hello, they just got, you know, a citation for drugs. Right. Um, um, and uh, and here's a brochure for some resources. But if you need Suboxone or if you want to ready to with your suitcase and ready to go to rehab, that's I don't know if they'll be able to provide that kind of assistance. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things is that the funding that has been established from the cannabis tax is actually quite robust. And so they do have, I, I think, from the monies, which is usually the limit, right? Usually money's the limit. Yeah. Um, I think that they have the ability to do this right. And the whole question comes down to is whether OHA does this right. You know, if these are expert centers that then, because they're in a community and they know every outpatient provider of buprenorphine and every uh, rehab center and, you know, every, every place for all of the social services and all of the MAT and everything else. And they're able to refer people seamlessly, you know, this sounds like magic, right? This sounds like exactly what we want. As uh, magic then, as the magic mushrooms. That uh, is awesome. <laughs> Fair enough. You know what? It'll be interesting. And actually we really should visit this in, in, in a year and see what happens. Yeah. And and hopefully you guys can track is that increasing visits to the emergency department. Um, I know that, and, and it's in California, this is by design. We have a California bridge program where we have people come to the emergency department to get started on MAT treatment, medication for assisted treatment for um, opiate use disorder, and, and then refer to the community. But with COVID, um, we're asked to write prescription for two weeks because mm. we can't get them into clinics and people are coming back again to the emergency department. And uh, although we in the emergency department are the safety net for society's problems and we're proud of that, and I'm proud of that. Um, I do think that there's better ways. Like we could, hey, why are we sending patients to the emergency department? Why don't we do all this by telehealth? Um, and it, although I'm happy and proud that we are that safety net, it seems like we can find smarter ways of doing things. Agreed. But let's talk about the magic mushrooms. Yeah, uh, absolutely. That is legal, not legal, only in clinical settings. I'm already yeah. seeing websites saying, come take these mushrooms. They cure your cancer and they cure your yeah. this and it makes you think better. And Are you depressed? Use these magic mushrooms and buy them on the internet. Click here. Yeah. And uh, if you buy two, you can get three for price of two. <laughs> <laughs> right. As long as it's in 12 grams, because then it's only a citation. So ah, there yeah. you go. <laughs> psilocybin <laughs> is not legal. Um, measure 109 authorized. This is actually the process is going to be very similar to cannabis, uh, but much more restricted. So they authorize the Oregon Health Authority to create a program that would license 
providers to use psilocybin in a clinical setting in conjunction with counseling. So, um, and, and only in people over the age of 20 or uh, equal to or over the age of 21. So there's a two year rules making period. And at the end of that, the Oregon Health Authority will have established um, licensing criteria, who can get licensed to provide psilocybin, um, labeling, packaging, how can you use it? You know, is it have to be a mushroom or could it be in a capsule or could it be a tincture? Uh, and then dosing standards as well. Um, but it, you cannot carry psilocybin through this program legally. It is specifically- yeah, People say, hey, my doctor says I can use this. Right. That would be illegal. So, <laughs> but you know, people do that all the time, right? I use right. my cannabis for, um, you know, my carpal my tunnel syndrome whatever. for texting right. too and much. If you went through the process and you got a physician signature and you got a medical marijuana card, then that is actually defensible, um, at least in the legal system. But if you don't have that, then it's not. So, um, you, so this is, we don't know what's going to happen with this. What my experience with the cannabis rules, uh, committees, um, is that they're going to take their time. They're going to probably take uh, a year or two and really figure out how to do this in a way that's, uh, in a way that's, uh, well, as safe as can be, because we can argue whether the law is ridiculous or not, or, <laughs> or whether it's a great huge change in mental health care. Um, but if you accept that the law is what it is, then um, their job is to um, to make it, make the program itself as safe as possible. So right. I mean, the whole thing and, is- And the thing is, sends the opposite prevention medicine. It's like, oh, well, this is used for my depression or my PTSD. So, hey, I should use it for everything. And and then people reach out and, and get that. And I think that that sends the wrong, you have to do a uh, risk benefit analysis for like any law or any medical treatment. So if you're saying that this is good for this sub segment of patients, um, but look at the consequences of, of doing that. So kind of like uh, vaping, maybe you know, vaping helps some people who have a nicotine addiction. Maybe they've done these studies in Europe, not in the United States, but, you know, that's like, Oh, well, you know, someone has a nicotine addiction. Why shouldn't we help them? Yeah, sure. Who's against that. But if you look at the overall picture and they've done studies for every one adult that you stop vaping, um, uh, stop tobacco by using vaping, you're creating 80 new adolescents who never would have smoked, who now become um, vapors. So was that a good, you know, public health decision? I'd say no way. You know, it's better to have Great. that one person still use tobacco and use other methods, frankly, that we have for cessation. And yeah. so I'm wondering if we're watching the same thing happening now with these magic mushrooms. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe you're going to help a few people. Right. But is that a good enough reason to have this unleashed on the public? Yeah, and I think there's, there's a couple of... Um, you know, there, there's pros and cons, obviously. So one of the things that I think is good about this is at least they didn't try to just legalize psilocybin, <laughs> right? Because right. um, that's, like that's for next cannabis. year. Right. And that may be, <laughs> that may be, um, yeah. you know, it's very specific. OHA can decide who can be licensed, right? So my worry was that like, you know, some person out there who has absolutely no training in anything medical whatsoever could go 
hey, I'm a license, you know, I'm a licensed psilocybin provider and come on mm-hmm. over and sit on my living room couch and, you know, get high. Um, I, that is really what's going to be the difference, right? Is OHA. Is well, I be- already see what's happening because I, on, on social media, they'll, I was recruited, this is, I have to laugh, but I was recruited <laughs> to be a physician um, to, to somebody who's selling um, these mushrooms. And nice. it's like, oh, you know, do you understand what I do for a living? Right. It's like, no, 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 we really, we really need more doctors. So they are actively recruiting physicians and, you know, paying them a salary in order to it, their business. Yes, totally. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, for me, so I guess the, the, the one point is it's not being released on the public. It is not legal to give, to, to sell psilocybin. Um, so there's going to be in this in this small group of licensed service providers, whatever that is that that means. There's a couple of messages here, though. I, I agree with you 100 percent that once it's, quote unquote, legal, then the stigma is gone and then, you know, there'll be new users. Um, my real fear here is that after doing all this work, psilocybin is clearly readily available in the community and people who are depressed or have PTSD will just start taking psilocybin, which is not what the law says. The law says you have to be, you know, monitored in a counseling session while you're taking psilocybin. Um, You can't just get psilocybin and go home. That is not part of the law. It is you come in to a session, get psilocybin, and then get a guided counseling session. Um, which is exactly what was done in, you know, there was a study in JAMA that looking at people with depression and they showed some benefits from this type of, um, this type of service. Now, my problem with this is we have a system to determine whether something is safe and effective, medication is safe and effective, right? (laughs) You know, we have an FDA system. Um, right. And I think that this law bypasses the whole, just like the medical cannabis laws bypass the FDA. Um, there's no provision in here to see if it's safe and effective. Hopefully the OHA will put in enough safeguards, but once it's out there, you could use psilocybin in a controlled setting and a counseling session for you know, maybe the OHA will determine that there's only the only indication is depression, or maybe it's only PTSD. And I hope that they do so. But you could see a pathway here where I, it could be anything. I, I think you hit the nail on the head when you say that we already have a process to to look at at, at, at drugs, and that's with the FDA. So if I want to prescribe THC or CBD, I can, and I know that my patients are getting it without. Um, metals or 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 other contaminants that are found in the drugs, and at least I, and I know a dose and indication and and warnings. And we we established a system. And I am really surprised that the medical community is not uh, um, more upset of circumventing the medical process. And and you even using words like medical marijuana. I mean, we went to medical school for many years, a lot of <laughs> blood, sweat, and tears and education. And and we can't give amoxicillin or even prescribe Tylenol without looking at risks and benefits and drug interactions and past medical history and vital signs. And yet, 
oh, we have medical cannabis can, you know, you can get that for, you know, without any of that uh, medical process. Agreed. And I think the, the frustrating thing is even if I, for, for medical cannabis, even if let's just say I made the decision that my patient would benefit from medical cannabis, I cannot write a prescription for it. I cannot make a dose. I can't even give them, I mean, you can give them Marinol, but like the way the system is developed, you would then say to your patient, you should use cannabis. And then they would go to a dispensary and they would ask the, you know, the 19 year old behind the counter, what type of cannabis and what dosage it is, right? And so no, but it really reminds me of a pill mill, like the opioid oh. pill mills. You'd go into the opioid pill mill and you'll say, hey, my back hurts. And they'll say, okay, give me $300 and I'll give you a prescription for Percocet. No, you don't walk into a pill mill and say, you know what? I can see that you have a history of um, bipolar disorder and depression. You have cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. This is probably not for you. Um, we should have a different thing. If you walk into the store, you're going to get the product. It's not a medical process. I agree. And I think, you know, this measure 109, this uh, psilocybin measure, this all comes down to how it's performed. You know, the law is a, is a law. Um, how does the OHA narrow the focus and do they use indications and how do they license uh, providers? Um, you know, you could very easily say the only person who could be licensed is a psychiatrist. I'm not saying that that's a good idea, but you could very easily narrow that focus. I, I don't think that that's a bad idea. No. Yeah. I, you know, and I think there, there would be, you know, or a licensed counselor or someone, and you can also, what OHA can do is, is man. So now you're allowing counselors to use this illegal drug right. that's federally, but they can't give legal drugs. They can't, right. And that's, right. A, that's a slippery slope for the totally. Totally. psychiatry, psychology community. Yeah. I'm, and and, and I, I think that's a good argument. And I think one of the arguments for the OHA is, you know, licensed independent practitioners, the only ones who can, who can prescribe drugs. This is a prescribed drug, if that's what the law says. And, uh, and also is it, um, are they reporting it to the PDMP? to your uh, drug monitoring system. And is cannabis being reported? If it's medically indicated, it's is that being reported? I've heard other states are doing that. I was told that Connecticut now, any medical quote unquote, mm -hmm. I put it in quotes, uh, marijuana is being reported to the PDMP. So at least you know about drug interactions um, yeah. and, and what else you're taking as a, as a physician. Like you said, we should, we should know what other um, yeah. things our patients are taking to help them out. But I'm really glad that what you have to say about the Oregon Health Authority, I cannot um, say that we have the same in, in California, we have the BCC, the Bureau of Cannabis Control, and that's mostly the industry. Um, there, there's not a real medical and public health voice on, on harms or concerns. Um, so if you have that on, on the OHA, the Oregon Health Authority. I think that that's that's important. Yeah, and I know that the the, the rules committee that they just put together has specifically has public health physicians. There's a addiction medicine physician, um, and they do have a voice. Now it's it's actually distributed, so there are like mushroom growers and uh, agricultural um, representatives and uh, things like that. Um, because some of the rules that you have to write are get really, really specific about, 
making a tincture and whether they allow that or, you know, the mushroom, you know, I know for cannabis, the, the quality control is really, really impressive. You know, the number of things you were mentioning before using cannabis and having, um, you know, metals and, um, the, the, the rules that they established. There was just a huge, there was just a huge recall, um, just this week in Colorado with cadmium found in marijuana, uh, flower. So I don't know how great that. that Yeah. So the, the, they are every batch in Oregon, first of all, must be grown in Oregon, um, must be, uh, tested for, um, herbicides, fungicide, and I've looked at the list, it's quite extensive, herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, metals. Um, and yes, we have had an uh, honestly fairly rare um, um, cases where there was stuff found. Um, usually it's been a pesticide. Um, and so, and it's over the number, and then they recall that batch, but it's, it's kind of, it's pretty rare. So I don't know if they're going to do the same thing with mushrooms. Uh, you know, that's that's up to the rules committee. Um, but we certainly hope so. You know, I I think the key is like, you know, it's a law, right? So we're we're yeah. debating whether it's good or bad. And um, but if we have it, let's make it as safe as humanly possible and you know, uh limit the service providers, um, give them lots and lots of training, um, and um, make this uh, sort of reputable um, uh, thing. I don't like sidestepping the FDA and, you know, um, using this for indications that are not really, haven't been proved to be uh, effective, but if we have it, then let's make it as safe as possible. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's the slippery slope. We'll have to see. We'll have to talk again, but you're, you're head of the poison center of Oregon, um, which is impressive. Can you just tell our audience, what are, what are you seeing? What are the big cases now, especially with COVID that, that you're getting calls on? Yeah. You know, so uh, the, um, we had a, uh, an increase in some calls that were related to COVID. Uh, so first of all, our, our poison center served as our COVID hotline for healthcare providers in the state, which was pretty uh, massive process, but we have handed that back to the state now. I love um, that about our poison centers. You're there for us, um, yeah, I you was, know, for the community and for the emergency physicians, we call you for advice. So thank you for that. An amazing opportunity to step in and help the, you know, help the community and help the state while, um, you know, things were pretty crazy, frankly, um, and uh, people needed information. So uh, the other things I'd say, you know, COVID related things we've seen, we really saw a big spike and then we saw a drop off of people trying to prevent COVID, you know, taking all sorts of things, supplements, uh, vitamins, um, you know, uh, bleach, drinking bleach, <laughs> drinking bleach. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We had a bunch of those. Uh, and we've seen a bunch of sort of like, you know, exposures to hand sanitizers and little kids. That's mostly tapered off because I think we got some public health messaging out to say like, you know, yes, we want you to have hand sanitizers all over the place. However, <laughs> you know, make sure they're out of the reach of toddlers. Um, but those are the types of things that we have been seeing. Um, as far as new things, the drugs of abuse that we're seeing up here is, um, a lot of, we have a sort of traditional 
heroin, methamphetamine, a little bit of cocaine, but uh, we've started to finally see a little bit of fentanyl. Uh, we had not seen that in the past. Um, most of our patients are using fentanyl, like they have a baggie of white powder. They very well know it's fentanyl as opposed to the East Coast where there's a lot of fentanyl in their heroin. We haven't really been seeing that that much up here. Um, and we've seen a lot of um, uh, benzodiazepines that are not, um, a lot of them are sort of unique, not FDA approved in the US, atizolam and um, and a couple of others. So we've seen them as these pressed Xanax. And I don't know if that's been everywhere, but um, seen a lot of what we're calling pressed tablets, which is essentially like you just take a powder and you put it in this press and you press it. And it looks like, uh, you know, in, in this case, mostly around here, there's Xanax bars, the eight milligram Xanax bars. Um, and so, and they have mostly other benzos and uh, a little bit of fentanyl in them and things like that. So those are the types of drugs of abuse. Yeah, people and people died from that and an increasing amount. We've, tripled our deaths of fentanyl um, in San Diego. Yeah. Well, yeah. I want to, you know, go over, Janet is worried that only 5% of, of funds is going to prevention and it seems that prevention is not supported. So I, I just want to, you know, echo Janet's concern and um, concern that the Oregon laws are aimed at normalization and, um, and is the exact opposite of the prevention uh, method. And I think prevent, if we are really serious about drugs, we, we, um, we, we need to treat that like any other disease process. So if we think of COVID, we want treatment for COVID, of course, um, but we want prevention. We want the vaccine. And if we are thinking about drugs, we want treatment, of course, for people who, who have a problem, but we want less of the problem in our, our country and prevention is important. Um, um, so I really want to thank Janet for her question. And Dr. Hendrickson, do you have any advice for, for Janet? Well, I think it's it's our our fear. Um, I think it's everyone's fear. You know, you can't just uh, you can start by treating the people who already have the problem, but you have to turn the spigot off as well, right? You know, the 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 you can't just open up the the drain and the bathtub. You actually have to turn the water off. <laughs> there you go. Very so, nice analogy. Very nice. So, so you know, I think the intent and I what uh, what I'm hoping is that this does not end here and that this is not a, you know, one, one, uh, uh, you know, one part of just, and that's it. And then we walk away and we go oh, fix problem, problem solved. We fixed addiction, you know, we fixed substance use. <laughs> um, yeah. that would be a terrible end to this story. Um, I agree a hundred percent. We have to do more prevention. I think, um, what I will do and what people in this state will do is we have to feed back to OHA that that's an important thing. There is still an opportunity to do that. Um, there is, you know, there are certain things that are mandated and then there's a lot of leeway what the OHA can do with this funds and with this uh, framework. So um, that's what I'm going to be feeding back. And that's what I know that some of the addiction medicine specialists who are on some of these councils are going to be feeding back. We have to work on shutting the spigot off. Um, but Love I do it. think opening the drain is a good thing too. 
<laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. And also, you know, embracing treatment with compassion and without stigma, we definitely want to do that. But but we also want less addiction in our country overall. Mm-hmm. I want to really thank Janet for her question. Again, she she leads a team, the PTTC, which are the vaccine for uh, addiction and the, the work that they do is so, so important and vital to our country. And I um, uh, thank them for their advocacy and they provide education on a regular basis, um, you know, from top people around the country. So really thank them for that. And um, Dr. Robert Hendrickson, thank you for joining us in this conversation. And I am really happy to to find that they have people like you, I mean, the head of the Poison Center, an emergency physician, a toxicologist who is advising. Um, And, and, um, and, and uh, I hope you, you know, and it's hard in an industry like that, but also to, to lead with the, you know, the, the medical knowledge that you advocate for and teach your wonderful residents and train them. And uh, we need to lead the non-medical industry when it comes to medical stuff. I think um, putting medical issues in the hands of just politicians is, is maybe not smart. And I'm very happy to hear that you are in, a, in the leadership role and have that communication open to provide that feedback in Oregon. Thanks. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to Pacific Southwest Prevention Technology Transfer Center. PTTC Region 9 is funded by SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. The Pacific Southwest PTTC provides technical assistance services for substance misuse prevention. They deliver state-of-the-art, culturally relevant expertise that reflects the regional needs. Region 9 is as diverse as it gets and includes America, Samoa, Arizona, California, the Commonwealth of Northern Mariana Islands, Federated States of Micronesia, Guam, Hawaii, Nevada, Republic of Marshall Islands, and the Republic of Palau. Thank you, Pacific Southwest PTTC, for your education, guidance, and expertise that you provide to this important region. If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful. Please contact us on hightruths.com. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us five stars and subscribe so you won't miss any of our informed, packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question take a quiz or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, and we hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.